uh, start training yourselves not to eat late at night because we have it, we, we eat at night for habit hunger usually. So people eat late at night. Try to stop eating maybe, you know, before the sun goes down or maybe around five or six o'clock your last meal. Get in the habit of doing those two things. When you get in the habit of those two, doing those two things, now you really shouldn't be eating more than three meals a day. Uh, and that includes snacks and everything else. But if a person is eating, uh, eating three meals a day, then you could say, okay, I'm going to go one whole day on just juice, let's say. I'm just going to do juices for one whole day. You get in the habit of doing juices one whole day, and then maybe you could say, okay, I'm going to try to go a half a day on just water and cut down on juice. And then eventually you could go one whole day with just water. You are listening to The Dr. Haley Show, the podcast dedicated to helping you optimize your health. Each episode, there will be an interview or a message to help you discover better health. We will be featuring health radicals on the show to bring new ideas to the table, as well as doubling down on key fundamentals to support you living your best life. Your host is no other than the founder of Haley Nutrition, Dr. Michael Haley. Paul Neeson, thank you for joining me. I wanted to talk to you about something that you know a lot about, and there's a few different ways to look at this, and I'm hoping that we can explore each area of fasting. I know that you've done fasts as a practice, as a regular practice in your life, and you've probably fasted more for possibly spiritual purposes. Tell me about fasting and how it applies in your life. Well, in general, I've always been interested in, in having the best health possible. And when I wrote my book in 2000, uh, The Raw Life, I interviewed a bunch of people that have been <clears throat> eating healthy for many years. I learned about health and nutrition from the Hippocrates Health Institute, Brian Clement, who's been uh, into health for many years, and he always advocated fasting one day a week. Well, the next interview was with a man named Dr. Fred Bishy, who today is 91 years old. So I met him maybe when he was 70 or 69. He's become one of my best friends. And he was in the middle of a 30-day fast when I met him and interviewed him for my book. And I learned a lot of wisdom from him over the years. So I've always experimented with fasting. The longest juice fast I did was seven days. And I did that a good amount of time. But I, I had no problem going a day without food. I always talk about overeating being such a big problem with our health. It wasn't Actually, after all these years of, of fasting on and off, water fasting, sometimes even dry fasting, living it, learning it, explaining it, it was last year at this time that I started my first attempt at a long-term fast, and I successfully did a dirty day water fast. Wait, wait a second. Did you just say a 30-day water fast? Yes. Last year at this time, I did a 30-day only water-only fast, and wow. I had fasted for a week prior to that, not prior to that. I mean, prior to that, my longest I've ever fasted on water only was seven days. So I did a 30-day water fast. It was last year at this time. Oh my goodness. And you mentioned that there was someone from Hippocrates that, and he was doing a 30-day fast. Was that a water fast also? Is that where you got the idea? Dr. Fred Bishy, he's not at Hippocrates. Oh, he's uh, just a nutritionist who's been okay. uh, teaching health for many, many years. Yeah, he, he's done over seven 30-day water fasts in his life and several 40-day water fasts. Oh, my goodness. Man's been on a raw vegan diet 100% for over 60 years. So he knows his stuff. And even with my fast, and as much as I know, I still consulted with him often during my fast because I believe that's important. So, you know, I initially 
got into doing this fast long-term this time uh, wasn't for any spiritual reason and it wasn't for any reason other than a uh, health reason. I just felt it was time for me to go the weekend and do a fast. And after the weekend, I just decided to take it day by day and I kept going. And then it turned into a spiritual fast. I was praying for things. I wanted to see things. So it turned into a spiritual fast and it was absolutely an amazing experience. I got many prayers answered, but the physical side of it just it was amazing. I, I, I would imagine after just a handful of days, you'd be seeing Jesus already. <laughs> well, uh, I've had a lot of experience of fasting for just a couple of days. As a matter of fact, since then, I fast uh, 36 hours a week. Every Sabbath, uh, I, I water fast with no problem. So fasting for a couple of days is the most challenging time during a fast. Uh, but once you get past the third day, it becomes very simple. And yeah, it's, it was, it's very interesting. And there's what you fast on is different types of water to fast on and knowing your whereabouts when you're going to fast and what's going on around you from an emotional standpoint. So I attempted to do another long-term fast recently and I couldn't make past 18 days. And I had no problem with the first one, but this one after 18 days, it was time to break the fast. So, so you are a human. Yes, yes, yes. Some people say, oh, start out and say how many days. I think it's something you want to take day by day. And, you know, it's good to have people that know what they're doing to advise you. And I'll tell you the most amazing thing. I mean, there were many amazing things about the fast, but I had so much energy that I wanted to conserve it. So I wasn't doing too much because I learned it's not wise to do a lot from the fast. But when I knew I was going to break the fast because I really wanted to go 40 days. But on the 25th day or so, I heard our creator tell me, only go 30 days. So now that I knew I was only going 30 days, on the 28th day, I stopped conserving my energy and I did more work. On, and it's not wise, but I just did it. I did more work on the 28th and 30th day and then 29th day than I've done the whole fast. Then I maybe done my life. I had so much energy and I was just doing so much gardening work and everything else. And I was like, wow. But I knew I was going to break it. I mean, it's good to rest, but I just thought it was amazing that I had that much energy. Now, after such a long, extreme fast like that, water only, I would imagine you have to be pretty careful breaking it. That's the biggest, hardest challenge most people have is breaking the fast. And again, I had uh, Dr. Fred Bishy to advise me, but I broke it. I had enough experience to know how important it is to break it. So I did it. I did it. I just uh, initially had... Six ounces of coconut water is what I broke it with. And I have it on video. It was amazing. And then I did another uh, small glass of coconut water. And then for about a week, I only did blended blended soups, like raw, raw soups for about a week. And then I started to eat a little, a little and had some berries and stuff. And then in time, was able to get back to where I was eating a normal diet. But the amazing thing was during my fast, it was a bad timing to do the fast because it just happened to be mango season. And I had mangoes and bananas all over my yard growing on the trees. And literally I had, I don't know how I did it, but during my fast, I was cutting mangoes and bananas from my tree and freezing them and dehydrating them without even tasting them at all. Oh no, that's torture. It was amazing. Yeah. And I was doing it and, and I did it. And then I, when I was done, I had, I had mangoes in my freezer for up to six months. Uh, for those listening and not have, having the luxury of mangoes living in Florida here, mm, what a treat. And people don't know. I mean, I, I'm a grower. People don't know. There's thousands of, different mango, thousands of different mangoes out there. When I lived in New York, I only thought there was one variety. 
out here, I have in my yard at least 50 different varieties of mangoes. Yeah, I'm tremendously jealous. Now, what would have happened if you would have broke that fast with, say, maybe an all-American meat-filled meal? Well, it was real scary because uh, two things I was doing during the fast. One of the things I was reading uh, some books about fasting and praying and spiritual side of things. But the other thing was I went on YouTube and I would look at other people that went on fast and see their experiences. Like this is my 18th day. Well, how many people fasted 18 days in their experience? And I would see stories on the internet about people fasting 30 days and breaking it with like a cheeseburger or a hamburger. And I was like, what are these people doing? They're putting themselves in such danger. And those people really focused on their experience and they didn't talk much about what happened after the fast, but it's very dangerous. And if I would have broke that fast, with a standard American meal and over eight, or even when I, with what I used to eat, a raw vegan meal with the amount I used to eat, I could have got myself very sick, very sick, taking away all the benefits of the fast. And literally, I mean, you go to the hospital. Here's a great example. The second time I did the fast, which is, uh, and this is a great warning for people, which was 18 days and I knew I was going to break it. So the first fast I did, I did an enema the seventh day of the fast. Everyone knows what an enema is, I believe, in your program here. Sure. And so I had a bowel movement. After seven days, I did an enema. I had a bowel movement. Now, one other time, I think on the 20th day of the fast, I did another enema. And everything was fine. The fast was great. Now, this last time I did a fast, I didn't do any enema at all. And I just, on the 18th day, I decided I was going to break the fast. I broke the fast. The 19th day, I went to the bathroom. I literally almost passed out. The, my stool was so hard that I was having trouble passing it. And I was literally almost passed out. It was just one of the most scariest situations of my life. Mm. And I didn't know what happened. I didn't know maybe I should have did an enema and, and something got stuck inside me. Or maybe somebody told me it could have been old stuff that was coming out. I didn't know. But I believe I put myself in a dangerous situation for a moment. I thought I might have to go to the hospital. So those are too fast. I have wisdom and I, I, I was really worried there. So you really need to be wise in what you're doing and not just play around with this. Yeah, thinking out loud, I suspect it, it makes sense that you would have ball movements throughout a fast, maybe not so much, but things have to move and you are, especially if you're burning fat. Now you probably don't have much fat to burn, but as people are fasting, they're still burning. So there should be something going on. Some kind of move. What finally did come out of me, it was like a cement, a cement block. I mean, it was like cement. It was the hardest stool I've ever had in my life. And uh, it, was, it was a little scary situation, but I made through it, you know. I'm glad you survived that one. Me too. Me too. You know, when, when you're fasting um, and you've never really had a lot of extra weight. In fact, I don't know that I've ever seen any on you. So without having those reserves... What happens? Do you still lose weight? Well, yeah. I mean, I've had experience with fasting in the past for, like I said, a week at a time. Uh, and usually me, my body, I usually lose a pound a day. And that's how it was with my fast. I lost a pound a day. So one of the reasons I initially wanted to fast was my weight is normally at a certain range. 140 is what it normally was for many years. But I got into exercising and, and powerlifting and weightlifting. And I went up to 160 pounds. and Normally, I always had a flat stomach, and I, my, I felt my stomach was a little bloated. And that's what initially led me to do the fast for that weekend, just to try to slow things down here. And so I, I, I was around 160. I had a bloated stomach. 
by the end of the fast, I got down to 130. So I lost about a pound a day, which was in line with what I do, which has always been. So I got down to 130, only 10 pounds under my normal body weight. Now, this might have been the problem the second time because I stayed at around 140. So the second time I fasted this year, 18 days. So now I'm starting at 140. So now I'm going a lot lower than what my normal body weight was. So maybe that's why it was even more challenging. Okay. Yeah. And I suppose you eat a very clean diet. I suppose if you did not, it could possibly even be more challenging because of the toxins that would be stored in the cells that you're burning as you're fasting. Well, anytime somebody's eating, the cleaner you eat, the easier fasting is going to be for that very reason. The detox is always going to be harder when you're not eating healthy. I ate a raw vegan diet and not junk food, raw vegan food, like just mostly fresh fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds exclusively, as a matter of fact, those things. And, you know, it makes it easier. So, so that definitely helps, makes it easier to fast. Was there a time in your fast that you felt like you were burning toxins or wasn't so much an issue? I mean, the whole time I felt like I was detoxing, but not like I, I didn't get sick. I didn't get a runny nose or anything like that. The only symptom I had to know I was even fasting was there was no hunger at all. The only symptom I have was, and, and again, let me w- warn your viewers, it's going to be different for everyone. This was my own personal situation. But if I got up too fast towards the end of the fast, I would be a little dizzy. Okay. If I got up too quickly. So I would make sure I would get up uh, more, more slower. And also, I was resting a lot more, sleeping a lot more during my initial fast. I have a hammock. And every night I would go in a hammock to lay down. I would literally fall asleep and wake up in the middle of the night and be like, wow, I must have been comfortable. No. So, uh, it, it, yeah, it's it definitely helps. But yeah, so more sleep and a little dizzy getting up with my so-called detox symptoms. But you know, everyone's different. And there are two kind of schools of thoughts on fasting. One is the best time to fast is when you're sick, because it helps push out the toxins, and so on. So if you have a runny nose fast or something, so that's one school of thought. The other school of thought is that's the worst time to fast. And the best time to fast is when you're feeling your best. So your body has all the energy and the power to make it through the fast. And those are two different philosophies when it comes to fasting. Uh, I read a book on uh, about spiritual fasting. And, you know, I know people that eat standard American diet and they have no problem doing a spiritual 40-day water fast. And it's like, wow. And so, you know, there's a lot of variables when it comes to fasting. Yeah. Let's talk about the difference in the reasons because you mentioned, you know, well, feeling bloated and choosing to do it for physical reasons. And your your fast turned into more of a spiritual fast. Why would people fast spiritually? Well, the Bible says and, and talks often about fasting and praying. So to do one without the other, it, it doesn't really make sense. Uh, but the Bible talks about fasting and praying. And when you're eating, your mind is occupied on food. That's another thing I noticed about my fast is I had so much extra time in my hands because I wasn't thinking about food. I wasn't making food and I wasn't going to the bathroom. I saved a lot of time not doing those three things. So that gave me more time to pray. It gave me more time to not be, uh, my focus not be off on on what I'm going to eat and think about these things. So fasting and praying go hand in hand. And in the Bible, the word, the number 40 is something people try to attain because Moses went on the mountain and he fasted for 40 days. And and, uh, Yeshua, the one I called Jesus, fasted for 40 days. So people think, okay, 40 days, I'm going to try to fast. So spiritually, people try to fast 40 days. And they're able to do it because they're doing it from a spiritual standpoint. The spiritual power can go so much beyond human power. Uh, but, you know, like I said, I think it's always best that somebody take it day by day 
and and you know be and monitor things you know somewhere it's written that the flesh wars against the spirit the spirit against the flesh these things are you know contrary to each other that you cannot do what you want and i know for me i've never done long term fasts like you i've done short term and i don't know that i've ever really went too far past that initial first couple of days where you're still hungry and you're still in that war with the hunger with the flesh you had indicated that you're not hungry when does that happen uh usually on a third day or the second or third day for me usually and for most people it's usually the second the third day usually for most people i challenge myself every week i fast once a week for 36 hours right now on water and it's a challenge because you are in that hungry stage and your mind plays tricks with you oh i'm just gonna eat what's the big deal we were designed to eat you know we got organs to eat so why not so your mind can play tricks on you during that day. And it's a challenge each day. I, I, I am in the mood for food each week when I fast. Uh, but at the end of my 24-hour fast, or 34-hour, 36-hour fast, I'm glad I've done it. But after three or four days, literally, like I said, I was cutting mangoes and bananas. And you would be in, everybody I've known that ever did a fast, they said after the third or fourth day, maybe some of the fifth, you, you lose your appetite. Pretty much you lose your appetite. And you just got to get past that point. Yeah. Would you say that's where the point is where things tend to get more spiritual? Like you said earlier, you know, it depends the condition we're starting out with. If somebody's more toxic, it might take them longer to get there. If somebody's starting out cleaner, it might take them a little sooner. So that depends from a spiritual standpoint. So that's about how long it takes it. But from a spiritual standpoint, we're all at different levels when we get into this. So I think that has a, a lot to do with it. And our circumstance in life have a lot to do with it. I do believe, and we can get to another video in the spiritual warfare, and it says there's a battle going on for our, our souls. And I think, uh, you know, we have to be aware of these different things. And fasting definitely helps us realize these things, put them in perspective. Uh, yeah. I've heard somebody say that if you can get uh, control of your hunger, you can get control of a lot of areas in your life. Well, I like what uh, Job says in the Bible. He says, I esteem our creator's words and his commandments more than my necessary food. Meaning the words of our creator are more important than, our than his own life, than his own physical life. And it's a really powerful thing because it talks about the power that food has over us. And I think we see now today with obesity and diseases that are food related and so much about food and addictions. The number one addiction is food. It's more addictive than any drug out there, crack or anything else. It's, it's, it's really an addictive thing. So it's really difficult. I mean, somebody's smoking cigarettes and, and you have a hard time getting off cigarettes and to think not eating is a bigger addiction than smoking, it's a really tough addiction. Uh, but I do believe that with a discipline and with uh, prayer, we can overcome everything. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting because when you talk about obesity, gluttony, those are things that people really struggle with. What recommendation would you give for someone struggling with those, you know, constant food desires, intake, alcohol intake, whatever it is? How, what would you recommend for someone that struggles with that? Well, I often tell people, you know, we're able to be successful at whatever our, our where our heart is. And like, for example, I can't consistently get up three o'clock in the morning or four o'clock in the morning on a rainy day and walk a dog. I love dogs, but I just... That's not my heart. I just can't do that every single day. I'm not this. I'm a very, we're all, let me put it this way. We're all disciplined for what we truly love. Some people love doing that and they, they can do that, you know, and we're all disciplined for what we love. So if you love 
your body like to the extreme of not eating the food, then you could do it. I always say, you know, what what tastes better? The, the food, what's better? The food you're going to eat for five minutes a day that's going to make you sick or not eating and you're going to feel better overall. And for me, my number one drive force for health, for eating a healthy diet, for fasting and everything is I hate feeling sick. That's it. I hate feeling sick. And I'd rather miss the pleasure of food not to feel sick. That, that's a good word right there because I have used that myself too. I've looked at that and said, I want that, but I know how, I know I'm not, if I eat that chocolate cake, I know I'm not going to sleep well tonight, you know, or whatever it is. And I'd rather sleep well than have this moment of pleasure. So um, I completely get it. Are you enjoying the show thus far? One of the many health secrets that we have covered on the show is all around aloe vera, specifically drinking raw aloe vera. Our aloe vera has helped our customers effectively heal their gut, increase their intestine health, lower inflammation in the body, eliminate and or decrease acid reflux, have glowing skin and hair, and so much more. Now, as a frequent member of our audience, you will be exposed to exclusive specials and coupon codes for the awesome products manufactured by Haley Nutrition. That's right, for simply being awesome and tuning in, you can get a mini discount to help you optimize and better your health. To see how we can help and support you on your health journey, tune into the episodes and listen for coupon codes that you can use at www.haleynutrition.com before you make your orders of raw aloe vera. Once again, it's www.haleynutrition.com. Now, back to the show. So my opinion has changed uh, over the years on intermittent fasting. I, I'm a strong advocate of undereating and not overeating. I think the higher quality food we eat, the less we eat, not, need, not the more we need. But I do eat a good amount of food, and I did intermittent fasting uh, for a good amount of time. And like I said, through discipline, you can do anything. But what I find is people that are eating once or twice a day, knowing that they're not going to eat longer, especially one meal a day or one window of eating, knowing that they're not going to eat longer, they just try to eat as much food as possible during that time. And I'm, I'm a big advocate of food combining and it kind of messes things up. I think there's enough time. I think two times a day is all we need to eat. If we're eating healthy two times a day, we can get by on once a day, but like I like to have one fruit meal a day and one fatty uh, green meal a day. Now, if I'm eating only once a day or within one window, I'm eating them all together. Now I'm not com combining my food correctly. So that used to throw me off a little. I used to try to do sequential eating when I did intermittent fasting, say, okay, I'll eat the fruit first. I'll wait half hour to an hour and then I'll eat my big fatty meal. But from an addiction standpoint, it just, you just try it, you know, oh, the clock's there. It's almost four o'clock. I can't go out of my window. So I got to eat as all I could. And I could see it getting unhealthy, just trying to stuff everything in a small amount of time. I think I'm not a big advocate of eating many small meals throughout the day, but I'm not a big advocate of eating one big meal also. So I think two meals, uh, properly food combined, a good amount of time apart, not eating late or before you go to sleep, it's very important, uh, and going to sleep on a somewhat of empty stomach, eating when you get up, eating in the early afternoon, mid-evening mid, mid is the best way to go from my experience, what I have found. Okay. I, I don't know much about food combining. Um, it sounded to me from that brief, what you said, sugars and fats maybe don't go together. They're not a good combination at all. And uh, it creates fermentation. It creates uh, 
many, many issues. And I, what, what I found over the later years is eating fats and sugars together was one, is one of the biggest problems, not only in my life was, but in people's lives. And it's just not a good thing to do. So I'm, I'm a fan of intermittent fasting, but not the one, uh, the three hour eating windows and stuff. Maybe at the beginning of a window and end of window. I'm not a big fan of eating late at night before going to sleep. But yeah, food combining is important. And I find people run into an issue when it comes to intermittent fasting with that. Okay. So what are, on this food combining thing, what are the basic rules then? Because you mentioned like fruit and fats. The basic rules basically are each food has a certain amount of uh, liquid in it. Okay. So let's say an apple and a pear have a similar amount of liquid in it. So an apple and a pear have a similar digestive time. If you eat watermelon, which digests in maybe 15 to 20 minutes, and you eat almonds, which take maybe you know an hour to digest, so separately, they're wonderful foods. But if you eat a watermelon with almonds at the same time, it's not a good combination. The fat in the almonds is going to hold up the, the, the watermelon, and it's going to ferment because sugar ferments, creates gas, creates bloatness. And doing that time after time again is just not healthy and not wise. So melons, you eat melons with melons, other melons. You eat nuts with other nuts. There is, there's, there's three different categories. There's the, well, for the base, basic, there's, there's the acid, the sub-acid uh, foods, and then the fatty foods. And I'm, look, I'm giving it to you on a level from a fruits and vegetables because there are many other types of uh, foods that if you're not eating a vegetarian diet or a vegan diet. But uh, food combining is one of the biggest issues that people uh, get themselves sick and they don't follow. And it, it creates obesity as well and bloatness. So uh, food combining chart, you can get anywhere online and just stick it on your refrigerator. Uh, greens go with pretty much anything, but knowing this thing. So for example, a cucumber is actually a, a fruit. A cucumber is a non-free fruit. Anything with a seed is a fruit. Cucumber have a quick digestive time. So if you eat a cucumber, uh, avocado is technically a fruit, but a fatty fruit. So there's not too much sugar in a cucumber, but they still don't have the best digestive time. So most salads, like when people throw chicken into their salad and they have tomatoes and chicken and cucumbers and corn, it's not the best meal. Even wow. on a raw vegan diet, I don't eat, I, I do my best to stay away from uh, from uh, raw vegan snacks. Like uh, I, I can make a banana cream pie. I can make a banana cheese, uh, I mean, a, a raw food cheesecake or something with cashews. But I don't like that because it's mixing fat with sugars and I don't like to do that. Okay, I'm learning a lot. I question now. So we got the, if you're going to start fasting, possibly we might skip a meal the first time and maybe in those two times food combined properly. And then would you gradually build, how would you do it? For someone that's never fasted and listening to us and saying, okay, I'm getting some basic rules. What, what should I do? Based on their diet and their health, I would start, say get in the habit of eating a whole raw food day one day, just fruits and vegetables for one day a week. So that's the basis. Start off with that. You're getting rid of cooked food. One day a week, you're eating just fruits and vegetables. Uh, start training yourselves not to eat late at night because we have it, we, get, we eat at night for habit hunger usually. So people eat late at night. Try to stop eating maybe you know before the sun goes down or maybe around five or six o'clock your last meal. Get in the habit of doing those two things. When you can get in the habit of those two, doing those two things, now you really shouldn't be eating more than three meals a day. Uh, and that includes snacks and everything else. But if a person is eating, uh, eating three meals a day, then you could say, okay, I'm going to go one whole day on just 
juice, let's say. I'm just going to do juices for one whole day. You get in the habit of doing juices one whole day, and then maybe you could say, okay, I'm going to try to go a half a day on just water and cut down on juice. And then eventually you could go one whole day with just water. So, and you know, it's very interesting because in, uh, in, in Judaism, there's a day called Yom Kippur where they're called to fast one day without any water at all. Oh boy. And, and this is a biblical thing, and people do it all the time. You have these overweight rabbis fasting on nothing on the whole day. It's amazing how people do when they're driven spiritually. But I've experimented with, they call it dry fasting. It's very popular in India where you don't even use water. You just fast on nothing. But you can get to a point where you do that. And, uh, you know, I know two people that have done that extensively. One died and one went 14 days with no food or water. Wow. It's amazing uh, the variables that take place in all this. But yeah, but to start out with, it's creating a habit, just getting a habit of eating less and not eating late. Excellent. I'm not going to try that uh, without water fast. I, I do not like to be dehydrated. Well, no, you'd, you'd be surprised. I mean, when I, when I do many of my uh, weekly fasts, it's often without water. Okay. You've talked about starting with raw food diet. I want to transition a little bit into uh, food. What kind of food? Where should it come from? Because we could say, okay, fruits and vegetables. That's great. Well, you know, let me go to uh, Publix and, you know, get fruits and vegetables or whatever the case is. There's sourcing fruits and vegetables. Where do you get your food from? Well, uh, I try to obtain most of my food from growing it. I think growing food is very important. And if you don't have the land to grow it, at least learn how to grow sprouts. Uh, getting some fresh fruit in your that you've grown is just an amazing feeling and also is a, the healthiest thing you could do. Uh, but if not, then your only choices are to go to the health food store, the supermarket or a farmer's market or a friend who has grown their own food. Uh, but most people have to rely on a supermarket. And thankfully, there's a good supply of organic food and even the average supermarket today. And it's important to make sure the food is organic, or at least you know the foods that definitely shouldn't be eaten that's not organic. Uh, for me personally, I, I grow a good amount of my food and I do get food from the supermarket, but I eat a lot in my meals, but I don't eat a lot of different types of foods. I'm like pretty much a robot. I have the meals I eat and I know what I eat, but, and, and that's very helpful without getting overwhelmed. But as for the type of food, try to grow some yourself. I've taught myself. I never grew anything growing up in New York. And now I, I grow a lot of stuff. And, and I just planted a bunch of stuff in my yard now that should be ready soon. Tomatoes are almost ready. Uh, but I, for those of you that don't have that opportunity, go to the store, speak to the people. When does the produce come in? Don't let it sit there all week. Try to get it the day it comes in. Go to a farmer's market. Maybe there's a local farm near you. You can go to the farm directly. And... And just do some research, you know, if uh, you are, I recommend eating food as local as possible. But if you are getting food from an, another country, uh, do the research to find out that country's laws on, on the spray and organic and so on. A lot of food that comes farther away is picked unripe. And that's not a good thing. Uh, so you want food that's fresher as possible. So that's why it's good to buy local. And then come to the question, what's better? Far distance away and unorganic or local and unorganic? You know, so you have all these different variables in there. And it depends the type of food to answer that question. But the majority of the food in the health, health food store or the supermarket today is unripe, unfresh, and unorganic. It's just not, not uh, the best way to live healthy. I'm, I'm guessing that you could probably tell a big difference between some of the things that you grow and some of the things that are in the grocery store just by mere color and taste. 
Absolutely. And that's how we learn. How do you know what a, a, you know, something good looks like? Well, I've had enough bad ones to know. Bananas are a great example. I get bananas off my trees. You know, it tastes nothing like the banana you would find in a store. I mean, it's just so much better on every level and you feel better after you're eating it. Same thing with mangoes and uh, even the greens. You know, so, so you learn by getting bad stuff to know what is good. And it takes sometimes years to learn that. But, but thanks to YouTube now, you can learn uh, a lot quite quickly. But, you know, we've all had uh, oranges that tasted amazing. And we've all had oranges that weren't really that good. And that's how you learn. Yeah. And the biggest uh, thing I notice between good and bad is the bad tends to have no flavor, you know, comparative to something grown in just an incredible, rich, organic soil. Well, soil is a really big, important thing uh, for my growing, and that's one of the number of reasons why I want to enjoy the food I'm eating. And uh, because man has disrupted everything, the soil is not that great that the food's grown in, and the food doesn't taste well. So you're 100% correct. You know, when food tastes good, it's a great sign. It comes from very nutritious soil. Okay. And I, I want to get into a little soil discussion with you before we go there. Someone might be listening and say, well, I don't have any soil. I don't have any place to grow food. And you did say something about sprouts. Yeah, you can grow uh, sunflower sprouts or wheatgrass or buckwheat sprouts in your kitchen countertop with just a, a tray. Uh, and uh, you can do this anywhere. It's not difficult. I actually sprout uh, mug bean sprouts and lentil sprouts in a bottle near my sink every day. And, uh, and I throw them in my salad or my, my soup. And so you can do that. Sprouting is wonderful to grow. And you don't even need soil for that uh, yeah. to grow into some of them. And then... Uh, Just it, a sink. Yeah. Then there's hydroponics. Some people do that that don't have soil. But for the most part, if you are growing in, in the yard or something, you want to create good soil if you can. Yeah. And uh, for anyone listening that's never sprouted before, uh, a mason jar. I, I like those big half-gallon mason jars. You get them, you know, six of them for 10 bucks at Walmart. And, uh, you know, a cup of beans, we're talking about the price of beans, dirt cheap beans turns into a, a cup will turn into this magnificent gallon of delicious, super nutritious royalty sprouts, just something, you know, that that is uh, absolutely incredible that you'd pay big dollars for, even though you bought it for beans. All right. I remember I was with one of my friends in their uh, yard and it was uh, he had been living on this property for just a couple of years and he was giving me a tour of all his fruits and vegetables. And when I was walking on the soil, it just had this unique like sponginess to it. We're in Florida. This is dirt here. And he's in Florida. And it wasn't like walking on the same dirt that I've been walking on for the you know 40 years that I've been in Florida. What was different about it? And it's how he took care of his soil. What could you tell me about healthy soil, Paul? Well, first of all, the, uh, the food is only going to be nutritious as the soil it's grown in. So a lot of the commercial store-bought produce is grown in soil that is, is just enough to get by. It's nothing, nothing great. That's why a lot of food that we eat doesn't have a good amount of nutrition and leads to many deficiencies. But I learned several things about soil uh, as I grow myself. I have a friend in California. He uses something rock dust in his gardens uh, to, to put nutrients back in the soil. That's in California. It might be easier to get out there from wherever he gets it. 
But here in Florida, we have very sand. It's, it's mostly sand here. And some things grow better in sand than other things. But either way, you want to add nutrients to the soil. And there's many different things you can do. Like the fruit trees might like more nitrogen or copper or something like that. Then there's uh, many different organisms that you can create. So for a long time, I've been composting in my small house when I used to have one with worms. And worm castings create a tremendous amount of soil, but just not enough. And even composting now. And sometimes like when I, when I mulch, uh, when I first got this property, the whole yard I filled with horse manure. And the horse manure got into the soil and it, it just made it really rich. Now you got to consider, well, what are they feeding those horses? Are they feeding those horses GMA or are they feeding GMOs or are they feeding those horses organic? So a lot goes into it. And it could sound very uh, complicated. There's another thing called compost tea, which I use in my gardens that uh, you could buy it pre-mixed or you can mix your own. And a friend of mine that has a lot of experience told me what minerals and nutrients to get and, and ferment in a, in, a, in a five gallon jug for a certain amount of time. And you could put that on your garden, just any way we could figure out and getting more nutrition to the soil. So one thing I like to do is I compost all my food scrap. So all my food scraps I used to put into a big compost bin and I used to let it sit there with worms. And then a year later I had really rich compost. I don't do that anymore. Now what I do is I literally dig a hole next to my tree or in the middle of my garden and I bury them in right, right there. So right away, uh, the minerals and everything from that, from that is getting right into the, in, into the nutrients of the food I'm growing. And it's, been, it's, it's a wonderful thing and not enough people I don't do it. So there's two things when it comes to minerals, where we're getting it and what we're doing with it. So where are you getting those extra minerals and how are you applying it? Are you spraying it, burying it, composting it and fermenting it? So those are the different sides of it. Yeah, you know, you bring up some good points when you talk about fermentation uh, and and compost and, and scraps, food scraps. For those that really don't know how this works, bacteria take over food things and consume it and things like fruit juices ferment and that's how wine is made and cabbage ferments and that's how you know uh, sauerkraut is made well these bacteria these microbes break down the scraps and then things eat the microbes maybe the bacteria are consumed by protozoa and the protozoa are consumed by worms and the worms are you know consumed by frogs and birds and essentially as it goes up the chain, it's all being pooped out on a bigger level, turning scraps into something that's very, very nutritious soil. And so much so that you actually went out and covered with horse manure for the richness of all of that digested, readily available nutrients for the things growing in it. You can actually take very, very dead dirt, even Florida sand dirt, and turn it into something that's alive, something that's crawling and, and, and just full of all kinds of life forms, some too small to see to the eye. But that's what makes healthy soil. If we contrast that with what's happening in conventional uh, farming, they're actually spraying crops with pesticides, herbicides, and fungicides, and things that kill. And they're killing the life in the soil so that it actually can't be healthy. It can't be getting turned over, made better, 
by worms and bugs and frogs and birds because it's all dead. So uh, I, I thought that was uh, neat how you talk about fermentation even making for good soil. Yes, actually, I actually, uh, the other day I was near one of my trees and I saw a whole bunch of flies and I'm like, what is going on? And it was a dead raccoon under one of the trees. So most people would have found a way to just pick it up and throw it out. But I just threw dirt on top of it and let it go there and ferment and uh, break down and uh, compost into the soil. And the tree is going to do great this year. It, it makes sense. You know, I mean, uh, people would use actually carcasses like that, too, for the sake of all the larvae and things to feed their chickens. <laughs> you know, it, it's part of the cycle of life. Things get turned over, but we're so conditioned to get rid of anything that's nasty or unpleasant. No, it's part of life and it just continues to turn over and, you know, uh, to dust, we will return someday, you know? Check this out. This is very interesting. So it says, you know, in the Bible, they didn't have bathrooms like we do today. So what did they do? They were told to take a shovel, they called it a spear, and go outside the camp and bury it in the ground. I will tell everyone here, they probably had the best soil surrounding the, the camps outside the grounds because that is compostable material, just like the horse manure. And you think this whole town burying their manure outside the town, that's very compostable, uh, good soil that eventually would turn into amazing soil. Where in today, the conditioning is to flush your waste into our drinking supply and then add chemicals to clean up the drinking supply. And it just makes no sense and it's very unhealthy to do. But uh, it just gives you an idea how we're going the wrong way. And so, so it's, it's something people need to uh, consider. I completely agree with you. Um, this is open mic for Paul Neeson. <laughs> well, there's a great book called The Humanua Handbook. And uh, I think everyone should uh, read that book if you want to learn about soil and composting and uh, just farming. It's called The Humanua Handbook. It's wonderful. And it has a lot of good information. Uh, and it's just excellent, scientific, safe, and amazing. So people should check that out if this topic interests you. Give, give me that title one more time. Did you say your? The Humanua Handbook. How do you spell that? So it's U H H H U, and then manure. Oh, Hugh Manure. Yes. Okay. Yes. Hugh, H-U Manure Handbook. All right. Very, and who wrote that? Do you know by? Yeah, you'll find it. It's very popular. Okay. It's very popular. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. And the whole, the whole idea behind that book is compost toilets and so on. Compost toilets? There is such a thing. Actually, I've been using one for uh, over 10 years. That's absolutely amazing. I did not know that. Yeah. I, there's very little flushing going on in my house. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so how does that work? Is it, uh, it, Do you take it out daily every time it's used or how does it work? Well, if you look online, there's a big uh, movement about it thanks to this handbook, but uh, it's very valuable. I mean, you know, what people call waste is not really waste unless you waste it, but it's very valuable. But <laughs> basically, you know, it depends. The guy in Pennsylvania who wrote the book, he has a big, big farm, a lot of land. So he just, he has five gallon buckets and he dumps it right out into his compost pile and bin with everything else, covers it with hay. And a year later, he has the most amazing soil. There are other compost toilets that are more sophisticated, like people that are living these vans and all this. They have these whole systems out there and some are more rustic and simple. Uh, but basically I have a, 
big giant recycle bin in my yard and you just throw all your food scraps and everything else in there and you leave it sit for about uh, a year and it actually uh, heats up and it heats up and kills all the pathogens in there. And then a year later you have black soil and you would not even tell what it is. It's really yeah. amazing. Yeah, I get it. It makes sense. For all you with the five gallon um, aloe vera bu buckets, um, ready to repurpose them, you <laughs> we have a new use for all those five gallon buckets. Paul, where can we find out more about you? Well, uh, my main website is uh, brawlifehealthshow.com. Brawlifehealthshow.com. Or to make it simpler, just go to rawpaul.com and it'll swing you over there. Rawpaul.com. Okay. And will that link to your other ministries? That'll link to everything. That'll link okay. to everything. All right. Awesome. Paul, we covered a lot today. Um, I think this is a great episode, a lot of good content for people to chew on. And I just want to thank you so much for your expertise and, and for taking time out of your day to be with us today. It's great to be here. Thank you. And thanks for the work you're doing. I hope you enjoyed that episode today on The Dr. Haley Show. Make sure to hit subscribe on whichever platform you are listening to this. If this episode made you think of someone, go ahead, take a screenshot, and share this exact episode with them. You can catch the show notes for this episode on www.drhaley.com. If you want to geek out with Dr. Michael Haley on other radical health topics, be sure to check out his YouTube channel where he posts exclusive video content. All the details are at www.drhaley.com and we can't wait to hang out with you on the next episode.